Hello, you're listening to Future Artifacts FM, a radio show hosted by Neve Schmidtke and Nina Davies. Earlier this year, several radio frequencies were discovered airing a collection of broadcasts. At first, they sounded like regular news stories and interviews. They felt familiar, but also not quite belonging to our present. Slowly, the listeners came to believe that what they were listening to did indeed belong to their world, just not their time. They were looking into the future through the mundane edges of radio recordings and public service announcements. While this material is still being meticulously studied by researchers in various universities and museums, your hosts have managed to gain access to this collection to air a selection of these broadcasts for you, our listeners. For full disclosure, we will not be sharing this collection with you, as this introduction is based on a fictional event. In this monthly broadcast, Future Artifacts FM, we will present speculative fiction pieces by artists and writers, followed by conversation with hosts Neve Schmidtke and Nina Davies. The programme will focus on fictional works intended for broadcast, such as radio plays or fictional interviews, to carve out a better understanding of the now by exploring various interpretations of the future. Welcome back to our third episode of Future Artifacts. Today we're joined by artist Rebecca Romero. She's a multi multidisciplinary artist born in Peru and based in London since 2014. She holds an MFA in Fine Arts from Goldsmiths University. Her work moves in the intersection of art, craft, design and tech. She's interested in connections between technology and an all too often imposed Western vision of, the, of history. Through a range of media, including sculpture, textiles, ceramics, storytelling and video, she explores concepts of diasporic identity, truth, fiction, and their relationship to the digital age. Before we listen to the work, the title is The New Worshippers, El Peregrinaje, and it's a 13-minute piece. After we play the work here, we're going to come back and have a conversation with Rebecca and talk a bit more about her research and kind of perceptions of the piece. Great. See you on the other side. Thankful, a three-hour trip ahead through and out of the city, towards the coast. Digital billboards, hot women in tiny bikinis welcome us into the speedway. Do not forget to change your tires, measure your oil, buy some beer, grab a bite. Three reckless sips of water. That should calm my agitated gut. From the back seat of the vehicle, I can see the landscape change, mutate, into a dirtier, rougher version of the same land. Bye bye, concrete jungle. Look at me. I'm running into the wild. They picked me up half an hour before that we had agreed on. We just followed the route plan that was given to us. I was not ready. I am not ready 
but I'm here now. At arrival, personal communication artifacts were disconnected, collected, then taken out of sight. Everyone, carry a bag. They grab their belongings and start descending through the dusty road that will lead them to their destination. Very little vegetation was on sight. Once the spot was found, they formed groups and set up tents. The sun had not reached yet its highest point in the sky. It is time to come together. Pass them around. They sat in a circle and peeled the cactuses with butter knives they have each brought from home. Their skin was thick, harsh, but smooth. Deep cut, the plant starts to bleed. The shimmer. No more secrets are withheld. The green slime extracted from the interior of the plant was placed on foil paper. The paper was placed on the sand, under the scorching sun. When the slime attached to the skin went dry, the pieces were collected and distributed in equal parts among the members of the reunited tribe. Open your mouth and chew. My chest is open and life is pumped into us. First of all, then light, then, then, then nothing light, and light. everything at the same time. Under the influence of the plant, long hair beans braided each other's hair. They touched their skin, their heads. It was so good to feel caressed. Sporty types ran towards the dunes and climbed their way up to the top using their four limbs to support their sweaty bodies. The mountain reacts. Welcome back to where you all belong. You are dust, and to dust you will return. The wind blows. Yawns. I can hear it calling my name. Deep breath. Everything is just as it was meant to be. Crashing sounds. Breaking waves. Salty smell in the air. There it was. The mighty ocean. Welcome Awaken. Leaving white foam behind every wave. Deep, deep, 
they distributed water held in shiny containers that were passed on from hand to hand. What is mine is yours. Quench your thirst. This will dissipate the fog. It was so smooth the way it happened. As I closed my eyes, I could feel the heart of the earth pumping underneath the soles of my bare feet. I opened my arms, placing energy crossing my body. I feel everything. I remember it all. The first time I saw the jaguar, it appeared to me in the middle of the night. Oh, to, long, go. The one that kills the primera vez que vi el jaguar, se me apareció like a thunder in the dark, the profile of the mighty cat. To, long, staring right into my eye, I feel it de un solo golpe. Is it me? Who you are looking for? Como un rayo en la oscuridad. The elder the new traveler between worlds. Mirándome, shortly after I came the snake. The rivers of the Amazon are shaped after her. Es a mí a quien busca. She approaches my body and enters. Los antiguos sabían de la vida del jaguar de viajar entre mundos. All that you touch, you change. Inmediatamente, all that you change, changes you. Los ríos de la Amazonía llevan la forma de su cuerpo. Looking against the interior of my flesh, it purifies my soul and leaves. Todo lo que toca, two wild dogs fight. Todo lo que cambias, te cambia a ti. The full moon shines. My body remembers that the mind has chosen to forget. Purifica mi alma. Y se va. Dos perros salvajes se pelean afuera de la maloca. La luna llena brilla. Mi cuerpo, mi cuerpo recuerda, recuerda lo que mi mente, que ha, decidido mi mente olvidar. ha decidido olvidar. How long have I been laying here? Two, three hours, said A. Tide had started to fall. First call. A fire had been lit in the middle of the campsite. Several of us were dancing, playing, fooling around. I touched my body, trying to recognize the space I had briefly left behind. I am no jaguar, no snake, or is it maybe that I am both? And also mountain and moon. An ocean. I join my peers in their celebrations. Our skins shine in contrast to the light of the fire. Our bodies feel like one. The warmness in the air holds us together. 
Someone hands me a piece of fruit. It is sweet, juicy, and all the things you'll expect it to be. Disappointment is a concept that feels far away. I place myself in the sand. My toes sink in its moving flesh. I am rooted, connected to the core of my land. Low tide, second call. But this feeling is temporary. This will pass too. As the sun sets, we get together, facing the horizon. Bye-bye ocean, bye-bye mountain, bye-bye mirage. The glitch is now obvious, like a crack in the sky, expanding. A gap appears in between us two, chilling air. The group disperses. The night falls. Next morning, still in a lighter version of the trance, the feeling is cotton-like. I pack my stuff. Outside the tent, nothing more than dust and the remains of a fire that helped us to lead our visions. Everyone, let's start moving up. Do not forget to pick up your phones. They have been kept in metalized shielding bags. The collected data of your trip will be sent to your homes. Keep it in a safe place. It is for you to enjoy. Thank you for coming. Please remember to fill in the review forms. Back in the speedway, an hour and a half into our return trip, The cotton veil that wraps me starts to vanish too. And I see clearly. I am light. I feel reborn. So, welcome back. Thank you for giving the work a listen. I hope you all enjoyed it. Um, so firstly, I'm just going to say to Rebecca that I just I really love the way the work starts. Um, as you describe the drive that the protagonist is taking into into this experience, I feel like you're simultaneously driving me as the as the listener into this kind of world. When you were writing the script, were you aware of its meditative effects? 
Um, yeah, definitely. Um, I feel like through the use of certain tools like pace, tone, sound loops, I attempt to provoke this almost hypnotic situation where I'm convincing you to let go of whatever else is in your mind and surrender to this story. Uh, to change your rhythm, join me uh, and fall into the pace of the story, which actually intends to give the listener a lot of space to breathe in and to wander around. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I also felt that kind of super specific tone and almost as though I was being pulled into a trance, especially with the, the backing kind of beat of, of the piece and how that kind of paces and pulls you along and then breaks off at certain points. Um, I'm kind of wondering as well, like, were you interested in that? I mean, were you interested in that relationship between tone with kind of pulling the listener into the story, but then also as a way to unsettle their reality? So you kind of pull them into this trance and then you kind of tear it apart. Uh, yeah, I think like, I mean, this choice came quite naturally to me. I think about it like being in a sort of threshold that you are about to access this dream. Uh, just like when we're kids and your parents tell you a story at night, uh, mm -hmm. you know, how big are the chances that you'll dream about that story later, you know, even more finding yourself as a character in it. So one other, um, in another question, I've got many questions for you, obviously, <laughs> but um, one thing that I noticed in the work is that like tourism seems to be very central to what you're interested in or what the work is. And the work sort of made me think of um, the TV series Westworld, or it's a TV series and a film from the 60s. The 70s, mm -hmm. actually. The 70s, yes. Just in case anyone doesn't know about Westworld, the premise of the story is where people go out to these different um, sort of outside of society and they go into sort of like almost like a cinematic version of society. So it's all themed like the West world is, you know, based in the old time, old timey, like wild west. And there's also other worlds. Um, almost like a theme park on steroids. Yeah. A good way to like, if you're trying to get a mental image. Yeah. Yeah, and so this, and obviously your work is not based on, on this at all, because based on previous conversations that we've had, you actually hadn't seen Westworld, which I thought was kind now of amazing. Now I have, <laughs> yeah. and I love it, yeah. Um, which I thought was kind of, kind of, yeah, I was kind of glad to hear that you hadn't watched it, because I was like, <laughs> it really strengthened the work. But it did make me think about what this sort of tourism, like, what is this, what is this touristic experience for, for the person who's going through this like that you're writing about and I was looking at peyote and I was thinking about um whether this is sort of like a indigenous sort of simulation though another reason why I thought that was because you mentioned tents and that sort of when I was looking it up it was like the, there was like little clues in there that made me think that it was that mm -hmm. but then also I and then you know aside from the indigenous part of it I also was thinking is it just is the drug trip the simulation or is it is that what you're going is it something completely different Or are you experiencing a different kind of nature? Are we sat in a future where like the sea, you talk about the, sea, the sparkling sea, is that part of this like um, simulation? Yeah, so I was wondering whether it was your intention with the work to kind of throw this idea of the simulation off balance. Like, are you trying to confuse the viewer? Like, what part is this? What part is it of it is the, um, the trip, basically? Okay, well, um, I think that my intention was to take off balance ideas of what reality and fiction are. Um, this, for me, is one of the main questions here. Same as when we talk about myth and fact, 
and what is considered knowledge versus popular belief. Uh, through the whole of the story, it was important to me that nothing could really be taken for granted or provide bits of information to the listener in the same way I would give them an opportunity, a door towards their own version of the story. Uh, if there was an ultimate truth here, I would be contradicting myself and the whole purpose of this piece. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> for you personally, is there a sort of ultimate uh, truth? Well, I would say that... Um, I don't know. I mean, is the plan causing the hallucinations? Is all computer generated? Was it all a dream? Was it real? I mean, what does reality mean after all? Mm. Uh, is an experience less real because it took place within a simulation? Yeah, that's what I was thinking about. Kind of, does it matter if we know? Because mm -hmm. I think we were kind of just speaking before recording about the work and about this kind of process of, I guess, how these ideas sort of sit together and how there can be this kind of space, as you're speaking, the space for the listener to kind of weave their own story through this. We're, we're not given a location, like a geographical location. We're never told the word indigenous. Um, you know, we're kind of piecing this together through our own versions of reality anyway. So there's a sense it doesn't really matter because it's how you perceive it. Interestingly, it's kind of your perception. If you were the protagonist, kind of are you perceiving this is kind of what version of that reality are you perceiving from this story? Or is it all of it? Regarding tourism being uh, a central part of the story, um, I feel that in a way, uh, what it seems to me is that we tend to believe that life-changing experiences cannot take place in the same space where our daily activities happen. We need to reach to faraway scenarios and sublime landscapes, etc., and nature, which also plays an important role in Westworld, uh, seems to be the space where we can find ourselves, uh, go back to basics or simply go wild, whatever that means. Um, so, yeah, we, we seem to need this frame to support our experience somehow. And I, I have some questions about it, right? So are we maybe reaching towards a supernatural connection, uh, something that is bigger than ourselves, or is it something else? Uh, are we nostalgic, but nostalgic exactly of what? Mm, I think that, yeah, it's, a, I, it's really funny that you talk about this because I was thinking about this. I think even today, I don't like not related to preparing for this. I was just like, <laughs> this was a thought. And I was thinking about this idea of like when you go on vacation or when you're doing something new, you're like, this is my life and this is like who I, this is who I am. And when you're, when you're sort of doing like the sort of daily grind of going to work and doing this, it, it, the monotony doesn't make you feel like you're experiencing anything, even though you obviously are. And that is actually that's more of what your life is than, than being on vacation somewhere really random for mm -hmm. two weeks or one week or three days. Yeah, I guess just like doing something new. It's about like by doing something new, we feel like that's what our life is. Yeah, I was reading... Um... Tretkov, um, Sergei Tretkov wrote the biography of the object, and it's it's kind of this is a, this is a complete tangent, mm -hmm. but in essence, there's a, there's a section in that essay um, where they speak about a lot of literature. First off, being focused on kind of singular perspective, so first person perspective, but then also how very often it happens in leisure time. Most of our lives are typically spent or at least from like Western perspective, are typically spent in kind of a workplace yeah. or doing kind of these mundane activities that just kind of have to happen for life to keep going. 
But if you read a novel, it's usually not set. You know, you reading a novel about someone answering emails all day would probably bore you because that's what you live <laughs> anyway. But, you know, a novel set in someone's leisure time. So, you know, if they go on a date or kind of what's going on in their mind or what is their family drama, that pulls you in because it's not the monotonous. So in a way, for me, that kind of relates to this idea as well of using tourism or the idea that, you know, you have to go away to experience yourself. It's like, well, yourself is existing all the time. It's kind of which version are you kind of hacking into in a way? In Westworld, in the series, there is like the tagline is something like, be your best self or uh, live up to your, like, there are no limits or something like that. And I found that like fascinating, you know, like how do we need that we have to remove ourselves and enter these spaces to actually find something inside of us that actually is inside of us the whole time. Um, mm. But definitely what I find inter interesting um, in this like organized experience is uh, like destructivist approach that uh, they can have. And what concerns me is the impact um, that it can have also in the spaces where these experiences take place and the people that inhabit them in a regular basis. Uh, I mean, after all, uh, and we mentioned this before, who can afford the £40,000 that a day ticket to Westworld cost or who can afford uh, £2,000 all-included trip to the Amazon, shamanic experience included, uh, or a day trip to a place where you can pretend that we have not completely yet dried our natural resources where you can still hear the wind say your name be one with nature cross a portal and soothe your soul yeah i mean that kind of brings me on to my next question which is like typically in speculative fiction there's mm -hmm. it's presented kind of a utopia or a dystopia um of course there are plenty of versions of this that also exist in between but Do you view this work as being utopic or dystopic? I mean, speaking about Westworld, it's a very dystopic yes. world. It's, I mean, I don't think any of us are speaking about it without like a bunch of a lot of cynicism. Um, kind of, do you view your work as perhaps being a warning about this kind of future, or kind of what do you think the warnings in the work are, if there are any? Mm -hmm. Well, I think that we like as humans in like with these like westernized, neoliberal, imperialist views of the world, uh, tend to think that we are absolute uh, masters of the universe. We can control everything, predict everything, create everything, stop everything. Uh, at the same time, funnily enough, we pursue these otherworldly experiences. Um, but the truth is that uh, we really can't control everything and predict everything and create everything. And the alarm bells um, are and have been ringing uh, for a while. Is it a warning uh, about the future? Well, many of the things mentioned in the story are already happening. Uh, mm -hmm. It is definitely a wake-up call in present tense. And yes, of course, things can get worse. Yeah, because the future within the work is revealed quite, quite late as well. Kind mm -hmm, of, mm -hmm. there's, there's a feeling of being caught. In the, in the present, kind of as you enter the story or as you pull us into your story. You don't, at least for me listening, I didn't feel like I was in any kind of future. It's only at the very end. There's kind of slow clues, but then it's only at the end that I'm like, oh, I'm actually, I'm actually in a future. You know, it's like, yeah. 
I think for me, that's almost what makes that kind of idea of the warning so much stronger. Because I'm like, is it a warning about now? Is it, you know? I find that like those like the scariest situations, you know, when it can happen tomorrow. Because it's like, there's no, there's nothing you can do. It's almost like unavoidable somehow. Or when it's even like, when it's, when you're actually like what you're saying, like, it's sort of like, you're not quite sure whether actually it's like set in the future or whether it's set now. Like, is that thing you, you, um, when listening to a work like this or, or, or a story or a video or a film or whatever, there's this idea that like dystopic is also like always in the future. Mm -hmm. So you always think that it's like far away and it's like a warning of what's going to happen in 30 years or 10 years but then actually like there is that thing of being like is this actually now is it like are you presenting as a future but like is is this are are we actually in in that future yeah i mean aren't the times we're living in dystopic enough like (laughs) yeah 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 exactly and i think about like if this work also had been about like if it had been like about a video game and you have this amazing experience in this other world and then you kind of, and then it ends and then you're in your sad bedroom. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like it could seem as this really dystopic thing, but you're like, actually that is like how most of us live. Or you, you do go on vacation and you come back and you do go to like, what do you say? The Amazon, the Amazon. The Amazon yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like that is sort of something that is actually already happening. It's kind of not that crazy. Well, I'm thinking these forms of escapism exist in, in literature as well. Like when people read books, you escape. Or, I mean, everyone has their different versions of escapism as well. It's, yeah, as we were talking about earlier, kind of almost escaping your present body in order to become more yourself. Mm. Um, Which is quite, yeah, I guess when you think about it in relation to the now, and particularly like I'm thinking like in pandemic when the way bodies occupy space and the way we breathe and like connect with air, that physicality of like being in your body and being in the present makes it feel a lot more dystopic, you know? Yeah, I think that, I mean, now that we're having this conversation, I'm thinking about where the need from escape comes from also, you know? It's like, have we created a reality for ourselves that we are not really happy with, you know? Like, am I happy to wake up at whatever, go to work 40-something hours per week and, you know, hardly ever see my friends and hardly ever being being able to afford, like, two-bedroom flat, a one-bedroom... No, I'm not happy. So, yeah, I want to escape. So it's, like, very... In a way, it's very human, you know, that mm. desire. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I guess it's sort of, like, what is mm. what is escaping? And one thing that I'm thinking about in this conversation is, like, is it okay to escape? When is escaping, like... When could it be potentially... So, like, in Westworld or maybe, like, with your work as well, like, escaping could be something that's seen as quite harmful to other people... But then I'm sure that there's other ways of escaping that aren't harmful. So like what, Definitely. like, how do you start to unthread or unwind? Like, what could be a sort of harmful escaping or what is, I guess, like consciously escaping? Yeah, in a way. I mean, I'm even thinking of drug trade as well, you know, for people taking different kinds of drugs. It's a escapism. It's a relief from whatever your present reality is. But the illegality of it in most countries also means that kind of who are you impacting in the process of you getting that drug? Yeah, no, definitely. I feel like, I mean, going back to that uh, extractivist approach that I mentioned earlier, you know, mm-hmm. it's like uh, in in relation to this like spiritual tourism, right? It's like we n- hardly ever stop to think 
like who is left behind cleaning after your experience, right? Uh, we don't. I don't think we ask those questions ourselves enough. We are too focused in achieving uh, that experience that will change our lives, even if it's temporarily, uh, without thinking how we affect the lives of others. Uh, and on a different level, and related to what you're saying now, Nif, uh, mm. I think that the same goes to the belief that we can just isolate, uh, for example, in this case, this plant uh, and the ritual uh, it is part of, you know, isolated from its context. I always wonder, you know, like, do you really think you can access this portal just by consuming the plant, even without being able to understand the ritual or to read its code? Yeah, I remember seeing this Swedish TV series a few years ago and they were, they in essence, they'd attempted to export the experience of taking ayahuasca mm-hmm. to Sweden. And they had it in this Swedish forest and these kind of beautiful wooden floors and everyone wore white and you were all in this massive room together. They do it here in London as well, I've heard. Yeah, and the whole the whole thing is <laughs> feels entirely insane because it's like you realise this is a spiritual practice and you are led and guided through it in a very specific kind of context. Hmm. And that feels like the absolute epitome of this spiritual tourism because it's like, oh, it's now such a high commodity that mm-hmm. we're going to export it back to a place that it can't exist in context because it's being, well, in essence, in my opinion, it's being abused, um, you know, because it's then you're taking it and you're not giving any credit back to where it's come from. You're not giving any support back to where it's come from. Exactly. I mean, it becomes a, a neo-colonialist practice then. Also, like a yeah. lot of a lot of information is like lost in kind of traveling over. And if you if you lose a lot of where that ceremony or ritual is coming from, like it's very easy to kind of bat off someone else's ritual or someone else's tradition because it you might think that it stems from like a belief system and not like knowledge based system or like a rational rational system. And I'm not mm-hmm. talking about necessarily like something coming to the West. Like, this could be going either which way. Yeah, definitely. Um, and. Yeah, because that's sort of some of the stuff that I work with, with my work with dance and looking at traditional practices. And when they get stolen and uh, performed somewhere else, if you're not taking note of why someone is actually doing that dance, it completely just loses all of its information. And that information could be really valuable. There's a reason why someone might be doing that dance. There might be a reason why why the ceremony happens. Mm -hmm. So what does it become? It becomes like, something else. Yeah. yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm I'm curious about what remains at what at what is transformed. Mm. Uh, but I think that we'll never know the answer, really. As like every experience is like very like personal. But uh, but yeah, I've I've always asked myself that question. You know, I mean, and as you said, both ways. Like not only by bringing the experiences to the West, but also by Western people trying to uh missionaries yeah exactly you know it's like and not really like knowing anything about the cosmology of the place of the people that live there are are like literally not being able to read the code you know Mm. it's like what what is it there that is happening i mean something happens or maybe not you know it's like this is this thing that we were saying the other day about uh the role of performance in ritual as well you know, mm. and how certain circumstances or just being in a group with people, being, living in a certain situation, in a certain place, kind of stimulate uh, some kind of like hallucination or reaction or, or 
vision, I don't know, you know. But also just an experience. Like an experience yeah. is totally valid. It's mm-hmm. reminding me of Neve in a previous conversation all three of us had. You were mm-hmm. talking about um, Christianity coming into Ireland. Um, and Ireland. what did you say? Like, oh, was it? Um, yeah. I, the recreating of a story. Yeah, I guess kind of when we're speaking about that process of, I guess, a certain I, a certain ideology or a certain kind of form of practice, mm-hmm. especially spiritual practice, being introduced somewhere else. So in this case, um, there's a, an Irish myth called um, the Land of the Youth or Tyrann and Og for any Irish listeners out there. <laughs> um, and the the story, in essence, is a, a really strong Irish warrior gets... Um, falls in love with a woman who comes from the land of the youth and he he marries her and he follows her to this land but then over time he misses his friends and his family back in Ireland and so he comes back uh, and he's told you can only ride on horseback and your feet can never touch the soil of the country when he gets back to Ireland naturally since this is a story with a warning he ends up touching the land of Ireland and he instantly ages all the years that he was gone in the original version of the story, uh, I think he's cared for by a druid um, during when the story was around in pagan times. When Christianity came to Ireland, they rewrote the end of the story that St. Patrick, the patron saint of Ireland, took care of this man in his last days and converted him to Christianity in his final breaths. So it's quite literally that thing of, okay, we see what spiritual practice, we see what is kind of the doctrine or ideology of this place mm-hmm. and we're going to stamp ourselves onto it so that you're kind of you're saying oh but this was always your belief or this was always your ritual um it instantly becomes part of the fabric like yeah or and, like it's like a but it's like synthetic this, fabric. yeah it's this, it's this weird thing as well of then not allowing something to exist as it does in its own kind of context and landscape because it's trying to kind of almost like remove it from that so it's like trying to remove the story from a pagan origin when that's where it exists i mean it feels Mm. in a similar way this way of kind of exporting spiritual practices especially those that are not from the west to the west it feels like that similar kind of process of oh we see what you have here and we're just going to stamp ourselves into it um like i think stamp in terms of being like a very aggressive term in that not actually understanding where it's coming from and what the context is. Once when I went to, um, I was back home in Canada and my family went on this road trip uh, to a place called the Soyuz, which is an indigenous part of the land which is occupied by the uh, Inca Meep people. And we went to a cultural centre of theirs and went to go see a performance. Like a, a I, well, I assumed because it was a performance by by these this group of people mm-hmm. that therefore it would be traditional so I just kind of assumed that it would be this sort of like traditional experience and the woman who was dancing was doing like a sort of mostly ballet basically okay. and I and I had this initial reaction to it being I guess my initial reaction back then was was probably not maybe disappointment disappointment maybe like a bit too harsh of a word but I was like oh I thought I was going to go see a traditional dance and then sort of years later I've been sort of thinking about this experience for like years basically yeah (laughs) it's been haunting me it's sort of like that I guess that initial disappointment it was like I've I've been questioning where that disappointment comes from and I'm like is it because I wanted to go see something like of a different world and actually like this 
This woman, this dancer, is, you know, she, like, she actually just lives in my world, like me. When she goes to dance school, she learns ballet. It's totally okay, basically. You know, you know what I mean? Not, not okay, I guess, but, like... It's making me think about something we spoke just before recording, where there's a sense of why does this always have to feel like it's the other, or it's belonging to an other of some variety? Mm-hmm. You know, in that case, it's like, expecting it you know ballet is still came from a traditional dance as well it just wasn't the type that you expected because it i guess there can be an expectation that it's from the other Mm -hmm. um as in the other from you which for me relates back to the story as well or back to the piece where there's a sense of which i think is really clever about using the protagonist as being a tourist is that they're coming into a world that is other to them. And then mm-hmm. through, the, through this process and going through this trance-like state, there's that questioning moment where it's like, am I the mountain? Am I this? And their reality gets completely distorted as I guess that process of the other becomes completely torn apart. It's like, why would they ever be other to you or you other to it? In a way, I'm kind of segueing through some questions here, but it's making me think about we spoke before about the pluriverse. Yes. So um, a very brief kind of version or definition of that for our listeners is a pluriverse is usually defined as a set of all possible universes or worlds. How do you feel, I guess, taking that idea of the other or kind of a singular world narrative, how do you feel that's referenced or reflected in this work in The New Worshippers? Okay, well... Um, I am really interested in this idea of uh, the pluriverse and uh, I've been reading this text actually uh, by this person called Amaya Kerehasu and she proposes uh, that the ultimate truth of one world, of one reality and one universe is also a myth. So uh, the pluriverse implies the existence of many worlds somehow interconnected. In other words, the human world is connected to the natural world and also to the spiritual world. Um, I think that by incorporating different languages into the story, for example, and giving voice to um, natural elements, uh, like in this case the mountain, for example, that normally are uh, not given one, I attempt to bring to presence the existence of these worlds that we quite often disregard. Uh, I feel like multiplicity, plurality, they, were, they are uh, important ideas for me right now. Uh, and I think it's, yeah, definitely it's an attempt to also bring the man from the center of the narrative and start thinking in a, uh, in a different way about the world that we live in and the world that we could live in, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because even beforehand when we were speaking about tourism and that process of kind of removing things from context in particular, mm-hmm. and you were talking about, you know, who's, who's left behind, you know, who's cleaning up after you. When I think about that in reference to the pluriverse in this work, it's kind of, you know, your world is existing just as much as anyone else's. Mm-hmm. Um, but also kind of the world within your world, so kind of that, what is part of your, what part of your world is spiritual or work based or education based or so on? I guess I'm kind of thinking in like opening up that idea of the pluriverse. 
I'm wondering also how that might relate to futures and maybe kind of signaling us towards a different kind of way to live. Or do you think of that as something that we are already achieving or are able to achieve in the present? I think that one concept that I really like when thinking about pluriverse is, um, is the one of assemblage. Mm-hmm. With, uh, with brings in this idea of like, we don't have to be the same. Mm-hmm. We don't have to be, you know, like we don't all have to dance ballet. Yeah. But, uh, mm-hmm. but, but uh, we have the opportunity or we should be opened uh, to share this world with, with our differences, you know, and in a like kind of horizontal way, you know, where these like hierarchies that somehow are a legacy from colonization still mm-hmm. exist. Um, I feel like, I feel like not, we are not there. Uh, it would be a really nice place where to go towards. Yeah. Yeah. You guys heard of the humongous fungus? No. Well, so <laughs> I actually don't know that much about <laughs> it. Us. It is, I think it's like, I can't remember how much land it spans, but basically it is absolutely huge is it like mycelium i think yeah i think so it's like under it's underground basically and it like covers like acres and acres and acres Mm -hmm. of land when i found out about that i couldn't believe it like the like i think i saw on a map of like how much space it spans and it was that moment of being like there is a whole not just only like a whole world there's like a whole being oh yeah that spans loads of different worlds like human worlds like there's different there's different communities, different different people, different like different lives, and there's this one thing, just like one singular life, that is all underneath it. So this pluriverse, that also like maybe this idea that worlds might be like the same size, or there's something similar to it, but also there are things that are just completely bigger. I guess we could look at climate in that way. Like climate is a much bigger system, and its world is um, much more complex than than our world. Well, maybe I would assume it is. Yeah, no, no, I think that you're right. I feel like there are so many, like, things that escape the human eye, so many worlds that escape the human eye, and just because they escape our eye, they, it doesn't mean that they have to be less respected, you know, and this applies to nature, and this applies, this applies to the moment when, for example, this process of colonization happened to the Americas, for example, you know, they didn't know what they were going to find, and therefore, you know, it doesn't mean that the the way people in the other side of the world were living was not real mm-hmm. and you know and did not deserve um, a space in the world yeah well they were expecting they were expecting one thing and then found something that like because it was, didn't meet their expectations Who it knows wasn't what they were yeah, expecting yeah yeah because <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, the other thing about the pluriverse that I think is kind of on the edge of our conversation that I'd love to make explicit is like coexistence as Mm -hmm, well. mm -hmm. And when you're talking about this humongous fungus as well, it's like just because we don't know it exists doesn't mean we are not coexisting with it. Yeah. And that coexistence also being that horizontal or that lateral way of living as well. It's kind of my coexistence with any being does not make me higher or lower than that being. It just means that we are in the same place or it means that we are existing within worlds that collide in some way um we were talking about this also when we were thinking about how uh in relation to nature for example you know Mm -hmm. how we tend to put ourselves like at top of the chain 
you know, and yeah. like doing that, like sort of like enables us to just exploit all our resources, you know, or like not have respect for like rivers or mountains or mm-hmm. forests. And it's really interesting to imagine how that would change if our perspective of the world changed as well. Yeah, for instance, even now, kind of certain certain countries in, to protect the Amazon rainforest have turned to giving sections of the forest citizenship. Mm. So then as soon as that land is seen as having equal value to a citizen, a.k.a. a human, mm-hmm. then it is protected. You know, my question whenever I hear these stories or kind of... Um, there's a river in, is it New Zealand? I think. Yeah, I think so. New Zealand as well that has had a similar process happen. It's been given citizenship so that it, in essence, it owns itself. But that process of ownership already is something that's quite, is constructed through a human perception of the world. Well, it has, yeah, it's been given like legal personhood. Yeah, legal is, personhood. Yeah. yeah, exactly. But then, my, yeah, my question in this is always is, Why? why? <laughs> You know, why, why all of a sudden, once it's, once it's a citizen, once it's a inverted commas person, then we can protect it. Oh, man, but that's so hypocritical because like so many people, you know, are I not mean, protected. Exactly. Yeah. So what's, what's the point? I don't understand, but yeah. Yeah. yeah well, it feels, it, works. <laughs> it feels a bit like this kind of desperation that you can't find that coexistence. So it's like kind of short circuiting that coexistence by making it the same yeah. in a way. You're a person. So now, now I we must respect, respect you. you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's and even at that, it's like already you know humans are not respecting each other. It's like a it's like a reluctancy to like understand you know a different way. It's like no, mm-hmm. I just just gonna respect people. That's it. Which, I mean, this is what I really loved in in your work is that there is that clarity at the beginning of the piece where it's like okay, I get where I am. I'm in a car. I'm traveling to this place. People are peeling cactuses, there are tents, and then all of a sudden you're sliding out of the known and you're pulled into this trance of kind of, okay, where am I now? I don't know where I'm situated. And you're forced to sit in that. And I feel like that is really important in the piece and especially if we're talking about coexistence and pluriverse. It's kind of, how do all of these things coexist? And forcing yourself to see what that coexistence could feel like Mm -hmm, or mm -hmm. be like. And obviously one very specific scenario of it, but there can be a sense of, because you've never experienced it or seen it, like, how do you know what it's like? Or at least from my perspective, that coexistence feels so hard to kind of be in because I don't know what it's like. Yeah, but it's that need of understanding, isn't it? Yeah. Like we need to, we need to understand, like as in directly in order Mm. to kind of like accept that it exists. So I feel like sometimes it's like being comfortable with not understanding. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So towards the end of the work, which we haven't mentioned yet, which is crazy that we haven't mentioned yet, is when you mentioned that the data from the trip will be sent to your house. And I mean, that's sort of like the big reveal, basically. It's like a, it's the moment where apart from maybe the word glitch, um, I was sort of wondering if you had any ideas of sort of what this what this data was. Does the data benefit the the person who's gone on the trip or does it have other purposes for the people who've hosted the experience or maybe maybe it doesn't do anything maybe it's just data on its own and that's it. Well, 
Um, as I mentioned, I think I mentioned to you too before, uh, I used to work for this company that organizes like immersive film experiences. Yes. So where people here in London, you know, pay like, I don't know, a hundred pounds for a for a day where they get to like dress like Romeo and Juliet, for example, and pretend that they are in Verona. Um, and one of the important bits of the whole experience is that they take your phone away from you. So you cannot really take uh, photos to oh. share in social media. So the purpose of the company at the beginning, I think, was uh, for you not to reveal the details of the show that they have put up. So secrecy, work it as an added, had like an added value here. Um, but a couple of years into the making of the show, they decided to add a photo booth inside. Uh, mm. So now they're like literally telling into your face that uh, they're profiting from the fact that you really want a photo in, in your disguise, right? So I find this like hilarious. Uh, you cannot take a photo with your own camera, but you can take a photo with theirs and pay them next amount of money. Oh my God. <laughs> and I think that uh, I was thinking about that when I decided uh, to add it into the story because I feel like people love souvenirs Mm -hmm. And considering the experience here is supposedly to be expensive and you're not sure when you're able to come back, it is normal that there is something that you can take home. But of course, in this scenario, the company might also have access to your visions and desires. And I cannot not think about the algorithm and how they might use these to tailor future, like better experiences for other visitors. Yeah. Um, so I guess... Uh a final question to ask your work feels like it's set in a new future kind of we spoke before it's like is it the present is it the future it could be a now and you previously mentioned your interest in 1970s science fiction i'm wondering how your understanding of like 1970s science fiction is impacted maybe how you've written this version of the future from the present i think that when related to the relationship of humans with technology Again, Westworld, Logan's Run, Planet of the Apes, uh, they held, all these stories held some sort of distrust towards what the future could bring. I feel like that slightly changed in the 80s and then especially during the 90s when also in the US there was like this massive production of like so many sci-fi like comedies or like slightly more like light action sci-fi films where at the end of the day the human was like victorious uh, I do think this is uh, of course related and we talked about this before uh, to the commercialization of home computers phones uh, etc when we the moment when we were thinking that somehow we could have technology at our hands sort of speak. Um, but I think that since the maybe the beginnings of the 2000s, something started to change and we are looping again to this stage where we are like, oh wait, maybe we cannot control uh, the machines after all. Uh, maybe we're not as smart as we think. Maybe we don't really know what the truth is. And I think that that's where it gets really interesting. Uh, science fiction wise a couple of days ago we were talking about the matrix for example and i think that that's an excellent example of what speculative fiction can be mm. um, i really like the complexity of its layering and i think i really try to add a bit of that into my work yeah because one thing we we're kind of speaking about then as well is that often 
kind of this idea of the planet of the apes, it feels so far in the future. It's mm-hmm. like generations away. Or even if I think about um, kind of certain forms of science fiction from the 60s, it's quite optimistic. It's like, oh, we got to the moon. We did this. Look yeah. at us. Whereas by the time, yeah, you get to the 80s and the 90s, it's, <laughs> it's like, what have we done? One thing that becomes more apparent, I guess, the closer to the present is that, that those versions of the future are usually set within kind of a generation. Mm-hmm. They're quite close. Um, I mean, one thing we were talking about before is kind of Mark Fisher, um, an academic and theorist, has this idea of the slow cancellation of the future. Mm-hmm. The idea that, for instance, if you look at fashion trends, fashion hasn't progressed that much in the last 30 years uh, in terms of trends. Like right now, everyone's obsessed with the 1970s. And part of that is that there's almost a guarantee of those trends have been successful before. And so the they 90s. can be. Yeah, and the, the 90s, 90s, definitely. Exactly. And the noughties are beginning the to come back. Yeah. But it's like we're constantly going back in time because those trends have been proven successful before. So mm-hmm. they'll be successful now. And our idea of what the future can be becomes less and less progressive because it's more attached to what's the profit margin or what's the kind of commodity of it or what's the production value of it. I'm also that unknown as well Mm -hmm. that we've kind of been veering in and out of in this conversation. It's being so scared of what that unknown could be and not being comfortable in any kind of space that you don't fully understand as well. You know, making a future that does not make sense to the present doesn't really exist right now because that unknown is too scary in a way. Yeah, I think that, I mean, uh, in relation to Mark Fisher, I think that this dark vision of the future had also to do with capitalism. Mm -hmm. So I think that, uh, you know, I always think about that uh, that phrase is like, it's not by Shishek, but Shishek said it and everybody thinks that it's by him, which is like, it's easier to imagine the end of the world at the end of capitalism. Uh, and I think that that's when the pluriverse saves the day, because uh, what it's basically what this concept is bringing in is the possibility or the idea of like it's not the only it's not the only option. There are other options. It doesn't have to be this way. You know, we just need to be open to not only imagining but uh, reenacting, being you know, mm-hmm. being this difference. Um, yeah, I don't know if this is related to science fiction question, but maybe, yeah. No, but I think it kind of is. It's like science, what I'm always fascinated by in speculative fiction is kind of creating the possibility for like an alternative world or a different world to the one you're currently living in or kind of using that as a way to talk about the present in a way. And it's like if you're not ever allowed that prospect of kind of imagining kind of some vast alternative to the now, kind of how can you change the present if you're not you know we can see there's so many faults in how our present world exists Mm -hmm. and if we're never allowed to consider or to imagine what the possibilities or the alternatives to that present could be how can we ever we're trapped in this loop yeah 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 i think we're gonna have to finish up now because we've gone a bit over um is that okay yeah of course okay um, thank you so much, Rebecca, for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It was fun, really interesting. Thank you for giving me the chance to talk about my work. Oh, yeah. well, thank you for yeah. talking about your work. That's the most important <laughs> bit. Yeah, thank you for being so generous with your research. It's been 
really, really fascinating to talk about it. Yeah. And our first guest. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Thank Thank you so much. 